0: Welcome, everybody. I don't know what to welcome you to. Uh, This isn't a regular podcast series that we do, but um, three of us thought we'd get together and talk a little covenant theology here. Uh, I am joined with, uh, I'm Brandon Adams. Um, I am a sinner saved by grace, and uh, I've got a blog that writes about covenant theology quite a bit, and I help maintain the 1689federalism.com website. Uh, Hopefully, we will be doing some more with that in the future. It's been a little dormant, but uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to do mm-hmm. some more with that. I'm joined here with uh, Sam Branahan and Richard Barcelos. They are also sinners saved by the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. They are also pastors and scholars. So Sam has written his dissertation on the historical covenant theology of 17th century particular Baptist. Uh, he's also written... um Uh, Positive Exposition from Scripture of Baptist Covenant Theology, and a ton of other stuff. And then Rich has did his dissertation on comparing John Owen and Gerhardus Voss's Biblical Theology, which is relevant for this discussion. Uh, He has written um, a book called The Lord's Supper, uh, sorry, More Than a Memory, The Lord's Supper is a Means of Grace, did I get the title right? I think so. <laughs> uh, and he also lectures on hermeneutics at uh, various seminaries. Uh, welcome, Sam and Rich. Thanks, Brandon.
1: It's good to be here.
0: Let's pray real quick and we can dive in. Uh, Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to uh, gather together here over the interwebs and uh, put our minds together and... Discuss your word. We ask that you would bless our time together. You give us clarity of thought, um, that by your spirit you would illuminate our minds to properly understand your word. Uh, give us wisdom to understand and apply it in all its interconnected glory. Uh, we ask that you bless our time here, that it, it would be a blessing and edify others, and that it would uh, be a means of, of furthering and creating greater unity uh, with uh, our brothers whom we disagree with. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So the, the primary purpose here, or um, what what instigated this conversation, was uh, a variety of episodes of Christ the Center on Reform Forum uh, that they've done over a few years. Um, they did a couple with uh, Jeremy Boothby, who was working on a master's thesis on the book of Hebrews as it relates to typology, covenant theology, with a particular focus on um, 1689 federalism so they've done a few episodes there and then more recently probably four months ago or so um, they did another episode with uh, Carlton Wynn and I apologize I forget the other guest name Will I forget his last name um, professors at RTS and their focus in that episode was on uh, Jeremiah 31 as it relates to typology, uh, subservient covenant theology, and, and John Owen. And that was, let's see, Christ the Center. I'll have links to it, episode 736. So that'll, that'll be our primary focus today. Um, before we, we dive into uh, our outline here, Sam or Rich, do you have any general comments or thoughts about uh, those episodes?
1: I listened to them, and I appreciated... Um... The
2: charitable tone you know that's something that gets talked about from time to time it's is tone and it's it's important it's not everything but it's important and I appreciated their um, clear desire to understand the views that they were interacting with as well as to represent them fairly. Obviously, our response is trying to further that understanding and further that interaction, but um it it seemed like it was a a very positive invitation um, to interaction, and I I just appreciated the way that they went about it, um, and I hope that we can in in many ways emulate or reciprocate uh, the way in which they conducted themselves in the in the interview or in the podcast and the way that they discussed it.
3: Would you say they were winsome?
2: I would. I believe that they <laughs> they were clear on things that they criticized, uh, but they were also Asking questions, saying, "Please explain this to me. It doesn't make sense." Um, yeah, so I appreciated that.
3: Yeah, I, I I did too. Those guys, they're good guys, and it sounds like they've read read some material to so appreciate that, and and they they have questions. So that's one reason why we're here today, I guess.
0: Yeah, and we will we will do our best to answer those questions and um, in interacting with them a bit. It's um, this is a very nuanced. Topic, it's a very intricate topic, and hopefully this podcast will help. Um, but I do think that uh, what would be most helpful moving forward would be to actually get a get us all together um, to discuss these issues face to face, at least at least digitally, um, be able to talk back and forth and answer questions and clarify. I think that would be very helpful at this point. So maybe down the road uh, that would be that would be possible. So to, to get us started here, I thought we could um, start out by just explaining uh, briefly, um, or not so briefly, our understanding of, of the Old Covenant. Um, much of the episodes there focused on the salvation of Old Testament saints as it relates to typology, so we're going to table that for just a moment and uh, try to establish and set up what we understand the Old Covenant to be in and of itself. So we would say that, um, and chime in if you want to articulate it differently, but we would essentially say that the Old Covenant was a typological covenant of works for temporal life and blessing in the typological holy land of Canaan, and it was conditioned upon the outward obedience to Mosaic Law.
3: Um, Can I say something? I'm going to set this up for Sam, because I I know he's done a lot of study here. Maybe it would be good if Sam could help us, help articulate or articulate for us. Um, and this is directly connected to what Brandon just said. The nature of a typological covenant of works, the relationship it does and does not have with the Adamic covenant of works and what that might be called. And where it comes from, uh, the Baptists toward the end of the 17th century
1: uh, didn't invent it. So maybe Sam can help us with that. I think that'll help stir up my brain.
2: So <clears throat> Dr. Barcelos is bringing up a good point that we understand the Old Covenant though it is based on obedience, or the enjoyment of blessings is based on obedience, nevertheless, it is not the original covenant of works from Eden, um, revived and copy-pasted into Canaan. Um, It has different promises, it has different precepts, and it has different penalties, uh, and indeed different parties. Um, So it it is republishing in the sense of, in many ways, imitating um, it is republishing in the sense of making the curse of the original covenant of works uh, known again in, in, in certain ways, uh, but it, it is not the original Adamic covenant of works, and it does not function like the original Adamic covenant of works. It demands an obedience that, that can be rendered uh, by even one who is not regenerate, and it also We'll we'll come back to this, but it also provides a means of reconciliation Mm -hmm. uh, within itself. And so, when I say it provides the, or excuse me, it it commands an obedience that an unregenerate person can can offer. What I mean is, for example, when God says, uh, "Go in and take the land," um, those who go in and take the land are are fighting, uh, and they're fighting on in the name of God, and and God is fighting for them, and God is fighting through them, but the whole nation can go in and go up to war. It is not just the regenerate who, who go to war. And so when God commands the Israelites to take the land and then to live in the land, uh, the, the things that he commands them to do are things that even an unregenerate person can, can offer. Now, because they're not regenerate, they're not going to do it perfectly, but there was a sacrificial system that was in place uh, in order to um, in order to restore them to a ceremonial purity, which we'll come back to that. But we have to notice that this begins not just with Moses, this begins with, with Abraham. In Genesis 17, as, as for you, uh, God says to Abraham, you and your offspring after you, you must keep, you must guard my covenant. And then circumcision is instituted and the one who rejects circumcision, the one who says, I will not be circumcised, the one who contemns uh, the ordinance of circumcision, it, is, it says, is broken off, is cut off from the covenant and will not enjoy the blessings. So just as circumcision could be applied to, to all of the Israelites according to the flesh, uh, there was an obedience that followed from that that they could offer and give to God. And some of the, we may come back to this later, but some of the accusations against them that they did not believe, and therefore they were they were failed to enjoy some blessings, that's not talking about a saving faith. That's yeah. talking about trusting that what God has promised to do, he will do. So, for example, the land. Joshua and Caleb say, if God has promised this land to us, he will give it to us. So we should go and fight. We should go and invade because God has promised it. And we believe the God who has promised and covenanted this land to us by our father Abraham. And Uh, and so therefore—sorry, go ahead. When
0: the Israelites left Egypt, it says that they believed God. They they trusted him and and left Egypt. It doesn't mean they had saving faith in Christ. It means they believed what God said about their deliverance from Egypt and trusted him and left, at least at that particular moment.
2: Right. So what we're beginning to develop here is an understanding of the role of phrases like belief or phrases like uh, obey. In the context, in the original historical context of the Old Covenant, and so yeah. if we look at the Old Covenant and we say uh, this is demanding Christless, graceless, bootstrapped obedience, um, it, it's just it's a bad comparison to one to one analogize the the Edenic Covenant of Works and the the Canaan Covenant of Works or the Mosaic Covenant of Works. They're they're distinct things with distinct contexts, distinct parties promises, uh, precepts, and and penalties. And so we have to look at the nature of obedience in the Mosaic covenant and realize that it was something that could be offered uh, by unregenerate persons, and also that there was a means of reconciliation for
1: them within that system. So um, subservient
3: covenant, covenant is something they brought up and push back on. What what you're describing is, is, would it fit within that category that the Mosaic Covenant is a subservient covenant to something else, or of something else?
2: Absolutely, and that's certainly where we're driving, is that the Mosaic Covenant is not an end in itself, uh, but a means to an end. That uh, the subservient covenant, not only does it Portray or republish um, or point back to the Adamic covenant of works, but it also points forward and is preparatory unto um, Jesus Christ and the covenant of grace, the new covenant that He will inaugurate and bring to the world. And so, the the law, uh, its its telos, its end, uh, is not just life in Canaan, but rather to to bring sinners to Jesus Christ and to bring history. Uh, to Jesus Christ, and that of course begins with Abraham, not just with with Moses. So yes, the subservient covenant view uh, is very much the way that I would understand the old covenant. Um, and we'll I'd like we'll come back to historical theology later on, and and discuss the the specific beliefs of those who held the subservient covenant view uh, in the seventeenth century, and how they're useful and. Uh, illustrative for what we believe today, but right right now, I think it's helpful to come back to the old covenant. Uh, we've talked about its obedience as something that could be rendered by the whole by the whole nation, but then now speak specifically about the function of the sacrificial system and the the use uh, of it and what it actually accomplished.
0: Yeah. Real quick, before we jump into that, let me play one more clip from them if that's the case um let's let's study or
4: discuss very briefly a similar type of subservient view, view but one where the type of obedience that needs to be offered is qualified differently okay what about those who may suggest that the obedience required um is not a type of a condign merit um even an, an ex pacto type of merit. So it's not substantially the same as what Adam was required uh, to offer. Uh, even Adam's obedience didn't earn anything before God other than God establishing the terms in the covenant. So we want to make sure no one misunderstands me there. But what about those who would say, we have here an arrangement in which this is substantially a covenant of works, but it's qualified, kind of. And the type of obedience that needed to be offered by Israel was an outward external obedience, maybe even the type of obedience that could be offered by an unbeliever formally, like a Pharisee type of obedience. And then if somebody slipped up, they could also um, remedy their situation with the outward observance of the sacrificial forms, which were also provided to provide restoration and forgiveness, although it would be an outward external form of restoration and forgiveness
5: in the land. Okay. I think I've got at least two things to say to that, and, Will, I want to hear what you have to say. Number one, behind the entire mosaic economy is the reality of creation and the original covenant of works. And we know, I hope we know, that at the core of that religious relation— compounded by the covenant condescension of God is face-to-face fellowship from the heart. So from the very beginning of creation, mm-hmm. God only and always demands pure, perfect, heart-level obedience.
4: Your, your banner of truthing before my eyes. <laughs> now. <So>, so <laughs> the notion
5: that God would demand only outward unbelieving, Christless, bootstrap, formal obedience would contravene the very essence Mm -hmm. of God's relationship with rational creatures. When has this
0: ever been encouraged? Are we denying that God demands perfect obedience from the heart from Israelites as image bearers?
2: No, certainly not. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, uh, and with all your mind. But we are distinguishing um, the function of the obedience in the Old Covenant uh, from that of the function of obedience for believers, uh, and what they were able to offer, uh, and what was acceptable uh, according to the Old Covenant. And their outward obedience is matched by an outward forgiveness in the sacrificial system.
0: The temporal blessings uniquely offered by the old covenant are what are conditioned by that outward obedience. It's not that God has suddenly stopped his demand upon the Israelites as image bearers and saying, You no longer need to obey me perfectly from the heart as established at creation as image bearers. He's not pausing that and saying, Now you only have to obey outwardly to the letter. Instead, he is Giving them some unique blessings not offered to other people in the world. He's established a unique relationship with them, giving them these outward blessings in the outward Holy Land. And he's conditioned those unique blessings upon outward obedience to the law.
2: Right. And I I think that let's not be abstract here, let's be concrete. This is what we mean. Uh, What God demands of the Israelites is ceremonial purity. He says, You will worship me, you will worship only me. You will worship me in the way that I have established and ordained and instituted in the places that I have established and ordained and instituted. And so God demands their loyalty. He demands their worship. He demands that they love Him and serve Him and obey Him. And that is part of the old covenant. So if we ever say, you know there's sort of this outward arrangement of obedience that really just doesn't doesn't matter, It's not important is not of the heart, that, that's not what we're talking about. God. Is demanding that they be his people according to the flesh. Abraham and his offspring, all of them marked by circumcision, uh, they are his people, and they are given Canaan, and they are to live there and worship God. And so, the the law of Moses um, it not only organizes, but it also strictly um, determines the way in which they are to worship God and the way in which they are to be holy. If you do this, you are holy. If you do not do this, you are unholy, or if you do this, you are unholy. And so the holy versus unholy laws of the of the Old Testament of the the law of Moses, that's what we're talking about. An outward obedience and an outward holiness or a ceremonial holiness. If you touch this thing, you are unholy. If you eat this thing, you are unholy according to the flesh. And the sacrifices restore that outward ceremonial holiness. So if we think about the kings, the Davidic kings, as well as the, the Sumerian kings or the, the Northern Kingdom kings, and if we think about the exile, the curses that are called down upon them from Deuteronomy and applied to them that remove them from the land, what determines the goodness or badness of a king and what determines tenure in the land uh, is whether or not they are maintaining an outward ceremonial purity, whether or not they are maintaining a, a, the holiness that the Old Covenant demands of them. And so because they are not worshiping God correctly, because they are offering polluted sacrifices, because they are perverting justice, all of these things are the reasons why God pours out the curses upon them. So when we say outward obedience, we're talking about maintain justice in the land, maintain purity in the ceremonial system, the worship that God has instituted for you and for this people. And that's, I think, a much better path forward than saying, in contrasting or it's it's better to say that than if we just say god demands outward obedience of course that that kind of phraseology is going to be liable to a great deal of criticism but if we get specific about what god commands in the old covenant it's it's to some degree a measure of just reading it off the page okay god demands this holiness god demands this justice in the land and when you pervert that justice and when you pervert that holiness then god will discipline you and curse you and cast you out of the land, which of course he did. So, so that's what we're saying. And we're saying that all of the Israelites could do that which was just in the land, and all of the Israelites could do that which was ceremonial, pure, and ceremonially holy in the land.
0: And just a, a quick comment there. So in the OPC report and republication, they make a great deal of emphasis upon the idea that no work could ever be acceptable before God unless it was done in union with Christ and spirit wrought obedience. Um, so they would say exactly what you described as impossible for a sinner. They can't do anything that would ever please God. And I think to that, we would say, first of all, we have the, the Noahic covenant that is stabilizing all of creation upon this, this common grace platform. Um, God is giving common grace benefits to, to all of these creatures that don't deserve it. He's allowing them to live and eat and breathe. And upon that platform, he's established this unique relationship with Israel where he's given them, we could call it very heightened common grace blessings. He's given abundant food, uh, wonderful land, victory in wars. And on that platform of common grace, he's saying these uh, unique rewards are uh, conditioned upon outward obedience to the law. We're not saying that they were... um, uh, they were pleasing to God in and of themselves. We're saying that they simply met the condition for uh, reward that He offered,
2: which would be what what uh, Brother Camden mentioned of ex pacto merit. It, yeah. it this allows you to stay in the land because God has arranged it that way covenantally. Uh, he has given you the land freely as a child of Abraham, but He demands your justice and ceremonial purity to remain in the land. Uh, which, so long as you maintain, you retain that blessing, uh, and so that is according to God's design and according to God's covenant, which He is free to make uh, with man as He pleases.
0: Main focus of of typology and its and its function, um, or or I should say, the sacrificial system in and of itself, it, its function.
5: So um, let's see, and so a subservient view has to assign. This is another problem. A particular function to all of these things mm-hmm. that is devoid of Christ. And, and once we evacuate the very presence of Christ, we've just done away with the entire point of the mosaic economy. and it gets back to the whole mm-hmm. heavenly patterning aspect that we were talking about earlier. What's being patterned in the Old Testament types? Well, it's Christ himself. Mm-hmm. right. And so the the integration of these things. And how Christ is actually communicated is the whole point. You know, Voss's triangle and his teaching in the Epistle of the Hebrews illustrates that perfectly.
0: So we'll get into some of that, the, tri- the triangle and stuff with Voss a little bit later. But um, he, he highlights an important point there. If we're saying this is not just, if we're saying the entire point of the Mosaic econ- economy is not simply to save Old Testament saints, we must assign some function for it. Aside from that, there must be some function that it serves in and of itself. Um, he would see that as a problem. We would say, no, that's that's recognizing the old covenant in and of itself. It served a function. The sacrifices served a function. Um, so in that sense, we wouldn't say that they were bare forms, right? They served. Um, they they served a function in their own regard, and so I think we've talked about that a little bit. Um, you, you mentioned um, there's a f- few other types maybe we could go through and just show what what they, if we want to look at, uh, Sam, you've, you've talked about in other um, lectures and stuff, the idea of two-tier typology. Um, and that's the idea that that the types function on two different levels, one with reference to Christ and another in and of themselves on their own level. So if we could focus a little bit just on that first level, that first tier, what, did these, what was the function of these things in and of themselves?
2: Right. So when we're dealing with two-tier typology, uh, types have their own initial, original, historical level of significance. They're, they have their own reality in and of themselves, and they serve their own function and purpose in and of themselves in their own day. And in order to appreciate typology, you have to start there and, and appreciate the type in its original context, which the symbolism there then becomes what makes it a, a type of, a, of an anti-type, that second level, greater and other than itself. So for example, um, the sacrificial system is the, the easiest example because it's the most developed and studied by the scriptures themselves, especially in the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, we are told that the sacrifices, they purify the flesh, uh, that these things, uh, these offerings are used for the purification of the flesh. And so when we go back to Leviticus or Exodus, and any time that the sacrificial system is either instituted or discussed in the law of Moses, the the sacrifices, whether they were the, the regular, the daily, the regular, or the, the day of atonement sacrifice, it uses again and again expressions that say, and their sins shall be forgiven, or atonement shall be made. Their sins shall be forgiven, atonement shall be made. Uh, and the, the writer to the Hebrews says, this is purification of the flesh. And these things, these sacrifices, do not reach to the conscience. They do not purify the conscience. They do not perfect the conscience. In fact, there's a reminder of sins built into these things. Now, this means that we have to realize that animal blood does forgive sins. Animal blood does purify the flesh. But it means, I have touched an unclean thing. I have disobeyed the law of Moses. I am now unclean relative to the law of Moses. I am now unclean according to the flesh. And animal blood will forgive those sins against the Mosaic law. Animal blood will make atonement for me according to the Mosaic law. Uh, And so it's it's kind of a strange thing where the writer to the Hebrews says, animal blood does not forgive sins. Animal blood cannot forgive sins. And what, it, what the writer means is in the way that Christ's blood has. So this is where we get that two-tier typology. The first level, the first tier is the type in its original historical context. The sacrifices take away sins. The animal blood takes away sins according to the flesh, or it purifies the flesh. But it cannot reach to the heart. It cannot give you what we might call heavenly forgiveness, forgiveness in the court of heaven. Whereas only Christ's blood can do that, and that's the second tier, that's the anti-typical level, that's the final, the the, the true, the ultimate uh, reality that the sacrifices are a picture of. So if you call the sacrifices a bare form, we would say, well, the sacrifices have their own function and their own purpose and their own significance in their own context, namely to purify the flesh, which is what the scriptures say they do, which is what Leviticus and Exodus say that they do, and indeed they did do. Now, we can take that understanding of typology, and it, it applies to the rest of the types of the Old Testament. So if you look at, for example, the Passover lamb, we would all say this is a picture, this is a type of Jesus Christ. And yet the, the blood of the Passover lamb, which is put on the, the lintels and the, the, the doorpost of, the, of their dwellings in Egypt, what did that blood do? What did that blood accomplish? What it accomplished was the passing over of the destroying angel that came through Egypt and struck down the firstborn of of man and beasts. And so we would say that blood had a real function, and it effected something in its own time. And through what it did in its own context, that symbolism points us above and beyond to the Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. This is true of the Red Sea crossing. What is it? It's deliverance from Egypt. It's giving the Israelites an exodus. It's also a picture of something greater. Another,
0: going back to the the uh, Passover lamb, was the efficacy of the blood of that lamb contingent upon saving faith in Christ?
2: No, certainly not. Everyone who is within the household of a of a place with the blood on the on the doorposts received that benefit. Everyone uh, was. Was safe
0: uh, they, from those. They, they had to believe what God warned would happen. They had to believe that there was going to be this curse being poured out on the firstborn in order to sacrifice lamb and put it above their, their doorposts, but they did not have to have saving faith in Christ, as we learned that entire first generation did not, um, but it was effective in and of itself. Um, So just by way of contrast, in in some other lectures and maybe interviews, Lane Tipton has said that in in that um, Passover lamb, Egypt was redeemed by the blood of Christ. Israel was united to the Redeemer, they were united to Christ, and they were redeemed out of Egypt by the blood of Christ. And we would say, no, they were redeemed by the blood of this Passover lamb, not the blood of Christ. Which was a picture, a type of the blood of Jesus Christ, of course.
2: So not to belabor the point, but what we are asserting here, and what I believe is in many ways the resolution to what our Reformed Forum brothers are discussing and some of the questions that they ask about our own views is to give a clear expression to two-tier typology that the Old Covenant, in, in, in fact, all types, but especially we're speaking of the Old Covenant typology, they had their own initial first level or first tier significance and reality and function. And in my opinion, our, our brothers often skip over that and fail to acknowledge it and fail to appreciate it sufficiently. And so to them, it looks like we're evacuating, the, we're making those things, that was their word, but to them, it looks like we're making these just bare forms, uh, an empty something that is a, apparently a, a picture of Christ but we have to realize they're not bare forms they they symbolize and they they grant blessings in their day and in their time that are distinct from the blessings that Jesus Christ brings uh, in himself uh, and so typology is, is two tier typology this first level the shadow and the second final level the antitypical level the, the substance
0: can I, uh, can I so as we as we get in just to the question of salvation of Old Testament saints, then um, let's start out by explaining the salvation of of New Testament saints. Um, There may be slight differences in the way we express this from from our Brothers at Reformed Forum, potentially. So uh, we would say that New Testament saints are saved by and through the New Covenant. And let me know if you agree or disagree here, but we would say that union with Christ, they are saved through union with Christ, and we would say that union with Christ is the new covenant. Uh, The new covenant is our marriage union with our Redeemer, our marriage union with Christ. Would you agree with that?
2: Certainly. The new covenant is how we uh, enter into and participate in the blessings that Jesus Christ has won for us as our head. So to be united to him and to derive from him all the, the grace that he has won for us uh, in covenant is, is indeed the new covenant.
0: And so they may potentially, the saints, are saved through new covenant union with Christ. And that, that covenant is made with us in the effectual call. We, that the effectual call, we could say, is God making the new covenant with us. And from that, we receive the spirit, we're regenerated, we receive faith. Um, forgiveness of sins, sanctification, glorification. Um, and uh, both the Westminster Confession and London Baptist Confession 10.1 and 14.1 talk about salvation comes ordinarily through the ministry of the Word by the Spirit in the effectual call. Uh, so that is, the, that is how we are saved today. Uh, our faith is strengthened by ordinances. Uh, but the, the, the salvation is established in the effectual call through the new covenant, which dispenses the ordo salutis benefits of Christ. Any comment we're on not. that? Yeah, New Testament saints are saved, and then we go back and look at Old Testament saints. We would say the same thing. Old Testament saints were saved through new covenant union with Christ, correct? Yes and uh, the author of Hebrews makes that clear in that he establishes Christ as the mediator of the new covenant. Uh, There is no other way to be saved but through his mediation of of the new covenant, Um, and we can put some links up there that that's that's not a distinctive of our view. That's something that's been held across various uh, denominations and schools throughout history. Augustine, Aquinas, the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church actually states this point, quoting Aquinas, uh, Lutheran's affirm it, uh, Baptist's affirmant, subservient covenant guys' affirmant, and various Westminster guys affirm it, um, Horton, Frame, many others, and, and most when I explain it in this way, they say, Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. We agree. Um, the disagreement then is whether or not the old and new are the same covenant. But what we would call the the retroactivity of the new covenant, just the fact that Old Testament saints are saved by the new covenant, uh, the work of Christ to come. They participate in that in advance um, of Christ coming to do that work because Christ promised to do it is, is sure and certain and, gu- <clears throat> excuse me, and guaranteed. Um, and like New Testament saints, that relationship with, uh, for Old Testament saints' union with Christ is also established in the effectual call uh, by the word. So the Le- Second of Baptist Confession added chapter 20, uh, it was not present in the Westminster Confession. Uh, it was first it talks, added
2: by the Savoy Divines and then continued on into our confession.
0: And it, uh, I forget the, the chapter heading, but of the gospel call and the extent thereof, some, something along those lines. Uh, anyways, point, uh, paragraph one says, the covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life, God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and beginning in them faith and repentance. In this, the, uh, in this promise, the gospel, as to the substance of it, was revealed and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. And it notes Genesis 3.15 and Revelation 13.8. So that, that explains primarily how we would understand the salvation of, of Old Testament saints is through the, uh, the word as a promise of the gospel uh, made effectual to their salvation. Would you have any comment there?
1: No, certainly. Excuse me. Not saving faith. Yes,
3: saving faith. It says, The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. Now, um, this is a this is a churchly confession. So I think they're concentrating on the, the then um, mechanisms or means of grace for the then people of God in the 17th century and, and us subsequent to that. Uh, but if we think about this, before in scripturation there are believers in the christ to come how did they come to christ um they got a word the the, the, the promise of genesis three fifteen must have been uh traditioned to um, pre-inscripturated pre-inscripturated people <laughs> people before the scriptures were written you know there were believers in christ prior to the promise of Christ being written about. How did they get it? They got the word of the promise. I think Adam and Eve were the first to believe it and then pass it on to others. Um, but that's fascinating to think about. I don't think the sacrificial system itself, uh, I don't think we should view uh, the mosaic animal sacrificial system as, I, I, you know, I guess we could say, that you know, they were visible words. But when we use that language of visible words, it's usually baptism, the Lord's supper, but they're not saving ordinances. They don't affect faith. They can enhance faith. They can strengthen faith. Um, so I, I think we need to s- distinguish there between the promise, <laughs> the communication of information, uh, with, um, you know, means of grace.
0: Absolutely. I agree. And I, I think that's, that's very, very important and very helpful. And it's, it's something that was missing from their conversation. It's not necessarily something they would disagree with. We say that types relate to the promise. So the promise is propositional revelation of what is to come. Types, how do they relate to that? Uh, they elaborate upon and illustrate in more detail the promise.
1: Well, um, I think
3: they certainly can. Um, You know what, I think Sam was going to say something, so go ahead, Sam, so I can get my thoughts together here.
2: Well, Paul looks back at the Old Testament, and he speaks about the mystery of Christ, Uh, and what he's talking about is that the revelation of all that Christ would do uh, was present in the Old Testament, but it was present in the mode of mystery. So it's revealed, but it's revealed partially. It's revealed obscurely. It's revealed uh, in dark uh, ways. You know, we can we could add a bunch of adverbs to say kind of the same thing. To say it was revealed mysteriously. Um, there there's a veil that's over it, and so typology reveals Christ um, not directly, in a sense, but indirectly. It, it's not. So, for example, animal sacrifices, it's not this animal is Christ and its blood is Christ's blood because the writer to the Hebrew says, no, it it can't do what Christ's blood does. But it does tell you God accepts sacrificial victims as to make atonement. God will accept the blood of another, a pure and perfect uh, offering or victim to make atonement. And so that, that is teaching you something. It is. Uh, it is affecting purification of the flesh in and of itself, but it's also teaching you something other and greater, that God will accept blood for the remission of sins. This is what God will do. And, it, and so as there is a reminder of sins uh, in the sacrificial system, so it, it pushes subserviently the the Old Testament saint or the Old Testament Jew to to look above and beyond the animal sacrificial system to something other and greater. And so it's not that the type in itself uh, accomplishes something, but it points you to Christ who accomplishes something and therefore is a, a means of connection. It is a type. Um, and so therefore, uh, it, it, through mystery, you know, it's not a, a, a direct or an obvious or, or a, a clear portrayal of Jesus Christ, but rather it is nevertheless a portrayal of Jesus Christ and his blood. And so I think that talking about mystery, incorporating Paul's category of mystery into typology is a helpful way of acknowledging that types are absolutely portraying Jesus Christ, but they do it in an obscure, a partial way. And I would recommend um, Benjamin Glad and Greg Beal's book on, on mystery. It's, it's very helpful. Of course, you know, I, I wrote The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant and His Kingdom, which you could look at um, but that's how I understand Paul's use of mystery and that's how I would understand typology revealing Christ. it does reveal him uh, but in a sense secondarily and indirectly.
0: yeah I, I think that the part of the both of our confessions that gets brought up frequently in this discussion is uh, chapter eight paragraph six it says although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation yet the virtue efficacy and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those type uh, those promises types and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world being yesterday and today the same and forever. So the the question that uh, arises with this is, is they feel that um, that view necessitates their understanding of covenant theology, that you must say that the Old Covenant is the covenant of grace, and if you can't, if you don't say that, you can't affirm 8.6. So briefly before diving into that, part of, part of the issue that I've seen, there's a little bit of Nebulous um, discussion of, of what communicated means. So, R. Scott Clark wrote a series of posts or long posts on this and, and did not accurately represent our view. And each of you wrote responses to that a few years ago. Um, the, um, what, is, what is the definition of communicated there? Sam, I think you, you, you gave me the. Did you stick the Oxford English Dictionary definition in there? So, what does the Oxford English Dictionary define communicated as?
2: Among the the various definitions, one of the ones that's contemporary to that time uh, and certainly pertinent to these kinds of semantic contexts is to impart, to transmit, or to give a share of. To communicate is to impart, to transmit, or to give a share of. It has other senses and other contexts, but in that time and in these types of semantic contexts, this is uh, the meaning, giving someone something, getting something to someone.
0: And specifically here, if we look at the, the language here, if we've got to be careful, the language here is saying, what is it that is imparted, transmitted, or given? It is the virtue, eph- efficacy, and benefits of Christ's work of redemption. Those things are imparted to the elect through these means. So if, if uh, a lot of emphasis here is is on the sacrifices, but if we set that aside for a moment and and remove that. The the statement reads, um, the benefit thereof were imparted to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in those promises wherein he was revealed to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head, being the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we isolate and look at it like that, it's not saying anything different from what we read in chapter 20, paragraph 1, for instance that uh, the promise of Christ is the effectual means of salvation. Um, so there's nothing there that should present any confusion as to, as to how we could affirm that. Um, the question then gets on to uh, how do types and sacrifices relate? How do they communicate those benefits of Christ to the elect
1: in the Old Testament? Right, so this is where the entire
2: discussion has been driving, and I believe that this is um, what essentially is where the disagreement is located, and where I believe in a sense the, I don't want to call it the battle, but the the discussion needs to take place, is two-level typology or two-tier typology and the communication of Christ's grace uh, prior to Christ's coming. Um, so. And and I understand I understand the question that um, Camden asked a few times. How does a commitment to eight six not entail necessarily a commitment to what we might call Westminster federalism or um, sort of the majority view of Reformed covenant theology? How does this not commit you to say that the old covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace? And here is where we need to do a better job of explaining our position, but also there needs to be better work done in historical theology uh, to understand the positions that have been held even within the Reformed camp uh, on these matters. So bear with me as I uh, explain this as best as I can. So when we when when we say that the grace of Christ is communicated through promises, types, uh, and sacrifices, uh, we, we really mean that it is through the promises made known Prior to Christ, and through the, the revelation of Christ in types, and in, the, in particular in the sacrifices, those are the means by which Old Testament saints knew uh, the promise of the gospel and believed the promise of the gospel and received the grace of Christ promised uh, yet to come. So the grace of Christ is communicated to them, it is imparted to them, it is, they are given a share and portion of it through seeing. Uh, Jesus Christ to come, Jesus Christ incarnandus, to be incarnate, uh, a- ahead of them. Now, someone would say, well, that's, that requires then a Westminster understanding of, of uh, covenant theology, because that means that the Old Covenant was an administration of the covenant of grace. But this is where we have to respond and say that the language of administration is insufficient to properly communicate the nuances of the biblical data on this, uh, on, this, on this question, because it's true. And we should not deny that the Old Testament uh, ordinances are, in this sense, administering, communicating, imparting, conferring uh, the grace of Jesus Christ to the faith of the elect in all ages. And, and someone would say, well, you've just given everything away, but that's not true because we, we have already stated that because of two-tier typology, it is not the sacrifice in and of itself, it is not the type in and of itself that communicates this, but rather the type in and of itself gives, communicates a different grace, a different blessing. We said, for example, that the animal sacrifices purify the flesh. So a type such as an animal sacrifice communicates two different graces, God's free remission of sins in purifying the flesh of an Israelite, that's what it does, and that's what it is, and in itself, that's all it does. But it administers or communicates the grace of Christ insofar as it points you above and beyond itself to something other and greater, namely Christ's sacrifice, Christ's blood, and the perfect and eternal remission of sins that one obtains in him. And so the grace of Christ is administered or communicated through those things, but only secondarily, and only for those who see beyond the type by faith. Whereas everyone who participates in the type in its original context, they, re- they receive the remission of sins, the purification of their flesh. But for some, as, as Dr. Barcelos mentioned earlier, for some of the Israelites, they saw beyond it. They saw above it. They saw what was other and greater in the sacrifices, namely Jesus Christ, not in a non-mysterious way. It was still through mystery. It was still veiled. It was still incomplete. It was still partial, obscure, and dark, and all these these things, but it was true. And so, just because something is subservient to the covenant of grace, just because something is typical of the covenant of grace, it does not mean that that thing, the, the type, is the reality itself. It's pointing to the reality It is its own historical reality pointing on to to something else. And so when we talk about the Old Covenant or the subservient covenant, we're talking about the land of Canaan for the, the natural offspring of Abraham who must maintain their purity and holiness to live within that land. And they have a sacrificial system to forgive them and keep them in that land. And that's as far as the Old Covenant went, and that's what the Old Covenant did. Now, this, of course, was typical of and therefore subservient to The covenant of grace and made it known to the faith of the elect uh, from its institution onward. So, just this is this is why the language of administration is is insufficient. It's nebulous. It it does Mm -hmm. not distinguish the two tiers, the 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 typological or the typical and the antitypical levels of Old Testament symbolism. Administration just doesn't get that specific. And so, I'm happy to say that the old covenant administered. The grace of the new covenant. And yet, I'm also happy to say that the old covenant is different in substance from the new covenant. And it's two tier typology that does this, which I base on the author to the Hebrews and all the other arguments that the blood of goats and bulls purifies the flesh. And therefore, it cannot be the blood of Christ and it is not the promise of the old covenant. Or the, the remission that Jesus gives is not the promise of the old covenant. Whereas the blood of Jesus Christ perfects the conscience, brings us into the heavenly holy of holies and is the the better promise of the new covenant, which is distinct, therefore, in substance. So, two-tier typology explains communication and administration, and why we can affirm 8.6, that the grace of Christ, the work of redemption, is brought to the faith of the elect in and by the promises, types, and sacrifices of the Old Testament. And I'm even willing to affirm uh, the language of administration. I just think the language of administration is unhelpful and for too long has been unhelpful and is used as a, a coat that is too broad and covers too much. It's not specific enough. Um, but this is where the misunderstanding takes place.
0: You mentioned um, the, the, you could say that the old covenant administered the grace of the new covenant, yet they differ in substance. How do we determine or define the substance of a covenant? What does that mean? The benefits that a covenant gives or offers, uh, I mean, the language of substance
2: is what, what makes a thing a, a thing or what it is in itself. The essence. Um, and so, yeah, the, the essence, substance would be slightly just distinguished in, in terms, but what it is and what it grants, you know what it is based on what it grants. And the old covenant purifies the flesh. It doesn't purify the conscience. So therefore, because it has an inferior promise and an other promise— a different promise from that of the New Covenant, it cannot be the same for substance. And the fact that the, the grace of Christ is presented to the faith of believers secondarily through typology in the Old Covenant still doesn't make the Old Covenant the New Covenant. It just means that it's a type of the New Covenant and that the grace of Christ is made known there. And so in the Old Covenant, you have those two levels present. They're both there, but our Presbyterian brothers, our Paedo-Baptist dear Reformed brethren, are skipping over the first level. They're skipping over the earthly level. They're skipping over the purification of the flesh, the remission of sins through animal blood, the outward ceremonial holiness. They're skipping over the promise of the old covenant. And because this, they see the grace of Christ there, they're concluding too quickly and flattening out uh, the, the discontinuity between the covenants. And one of my criticisms is that this is often done because of a systematic necessity. It's necessary to, to maintain the system. And older writers acknowledged this. So if you go back to John Ball, if you go back to Anthony Burgess, if you go back to Stephen Marshall, they will say uh, again and again, so long as the grace of Christ is coming through those Old Testament ordinances, it is the same covenant. For them, that's it. Whereas we would say you're, you're skipping over the blessings and benefits of the Old Covenant, which are distinct but typological of typical of the New Covenant uh, blessings. And so we're not denying the grace of the, of the new covenant present in the old, but we are distinguishing the grace of the new covenant from the grace of the old. To have my flesh purified and my sins remitted in the land of Canaan is a grace. It is a benefit and a blessing from God. But the writer to the Hebrews says that's, that's not it. And if you go back to those sacrifices for that remission, then you're saying Jesus hasn't come. You're saying that Jesus was not the Christ. Uh, and that's, that's why a return to the old is not just returning to an old form of the same thing. It's returning to something else that was preparatory and provisional and not the reality. The, the shadow substance language is informative because my shadow is not me, but it tells you about me. With trigonometry, you could determine my height. Uh, from my, sh- my shadow, you could possibly discern my gender. That would be okay. It's okay to do that. Uh, you, you would discern all kinds of things. Okay, This person's about this height. It seems to be a man. Uh, you could know certain things about me from my shadow, but you couldn't speak to my shadow you couldn't talk to my shadow you couldn't see a face in my shadow and so the remission of sins the purification of the flesh from animal blood it tells you about Christ but it's not Christ it portrays Christ but it's not Christ and so the old covenant and all of its typology does the same thing and that's why i i'm happy to use the language of administration but i don't think it's helpful or maybe i should say i'm not
0: happy to use it but i'm i'm i can really? use it but i choose not to so they um to, to maybe paraphrase or, or, or resummarize a little bit. So they would say that um, the, the Old Covenant was a means or occasion upon which the benefits of Christ were conferred or imparted to Old Testament saints in the sense that the sacrificial system, as we explained, illustrates Christ, um, builds upon the promise by the Spirit that's made effectual for those, their salvation. They would say, therefore, the Old Covenant Promised regeneration, faith, forgiveness in Christ—all of these New Covenant blessings—and we would say that's not a valid logical deduction. The one does not—it's a non other.:
2: Yeah, it does not follow. We, yeah, are, we're affirming so, the presence of the grace of Christ.
3: Saying, therefore, until the New Covenant was historically inaugurated by the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ, or the blood of Christ. No one before that time enjoyed union with Christ and
1: benefits. Um, and I think I need you to agree with that, but I think the New Testament in some,
3: at least one obscure place lends credence to that. In 2 Timothy 3.15, we read this, and that from childhood, You have known the sacred writings, which I take to be the sacred writings of the Old Testament, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So it seems there that the Old Testament, prior to Christ's witness about himself in relation to the Old Testament, and certainly prior to the writing of the New Testament, was able, you could say, would have to be enabled by God, to give
1: wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So it seems that uh, this would be the
3: experience of Christ and his benefits um, brought to people during the Old Testament era through the, through the sacred writings which would mean that, the, that Christ and the benefits were available to people before Christ
1: procured the benefits
3: uh, Brandon, you know that statement I think it's in Calvin's commentary on is it Hebrews 10 where he, he basically says that Moses was the minister of the old covenant, but recipient of the grace of the new or something like that.
1: Uh, Augustine. Oh, Um, Calvin makes a similar statement. He puts
3: either, he puts either Abraham or Moses, uh, as a recipient of the grace
0: uh, of the new covenant. covenant, Yes. So let me see
1: if I've got it here. uh, you got it
3: from that dissertation there we go there augustine, we go augustine in the new covenant uh
0: i actually found this one just uh from from calvin just reading reading his commentary in hebrews 8 but um uh he, he he says whatever spiritual gifts the fathers obtained um they were accidental as it were to their age for it was necessary for them to direct their eyes to christ in order to become possessed of them there is yet no reason why God should not have extended the grace of the new covenant to the fathers. This is the true solution of the question. So he was trying to wrestle with, with Hebrews um, 8.10, which talks about, uh, I will put my law in their minds, I will write it in their hearts, I will be the God and they should be my people, and, and talking about uh, the, the spirit being poured out. And he was trying to say, well, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's referring to just a greater blessing of the spirit, referring to greater faith, more faith. And he says, well, wait a minute, is my faith greater than Abraham's? That doesn't really make sense. He's, he's the exemplar of faith. He, he's got more faith than I had, so that can't be what it means. And so that, that's when he says this, that the, the real solution to what this is saying is that all those Old Testament saints received these benefits in the new covenant. And, um, he he makes a comment uh, in his in his Institutes uh, about Augustine on this point, and Augustine says something similar. He says um, uh, the happy persons who even in that early age were by the grace of God taught to understand the distinction now set forth were thereby made the children of promise and were accounted in the secret purposes of God as heirs of the New Testament, although they continued with perfect fitness to administer the Old Testament to the ancient people of God. Um, and he's got a lot more statements along those lines. But yeah, Jeremiah Moon's um, dissertation on, on Augustine's Jeremiah 31 and Augustinian reading, something like that is, is really good.
1: Um, to acknowledge
2: or deny, to affirm or deny, did the sacrifices of the Old Testament remit sins outwardly, or remit outward sins, we might say? Was there a carnal use was there a carnal holiness? Was there carnal, carnal sins and carnal sacrifices, apart from saving faith in Christ, which are distinct in substance from that, that the were grace?
0: efficacious that were efficacious apart from saving faith in Christ, whether the participant had saving faith in Christ or not?
2: Correct, as Thomas Goodwin said, it was effective to to all the Israelites, and then it had a spiritual significance above and beyond or beside um, its initial historical significance that is what I want Presbyterian brethren to either affirm or deny. Did the Old Covenant offer a remission to all who participated in it rightly, according to the law, uh, that is distinct in substance from the remission that Jesus Christ provides? Um, And, well, I I would love to hear them discuss that point uh, more specifically, because I think that is where the agreement and the disagreement can be made more clear. Is that the two-level nature of typology in the system? And then just one last quote from a particular. Stood and recognized that covenant theology in the Reformed tradition is broader than the Westminster Confession, and that this subservient covenant view had had plenty of proponents and and people who received it and accepted it and thought it was good. Uh, the Presbyterians did tend to reject it quite explicitly. Uh, But the Congregationalists tended to embrace it quite explicitly. And I think that it needs—one of the reasons is not only to understand the historical theology, but because perhaps this is perception. At times, I feel like we're being painted as this is a Baptist position. This is the way that Baptists think. Uh, Whereas we're—speaking for myself, I'm very self-consciously following uh, Cameron and Bolton and Goodwin— and Burroughs and Owen and the particular Baptists who followed the same kind of argumentation because I think it is bi- faithful to the biblical data and that it is wise and it does indeed resolve many of these controversies. So I, I'd love to see our brothers affirm or deny two tier typology. Uh, I think two tier typology can even uh, coexist with Voss's triangle. I, I don't really, we don't have time to go into that, but I wouldn't even reject it other than to say you need to reevaluate uh, point B on the triangle, the nature of the type. Is it the heaven reality itself, uh, or is it a picture of the heavenly reality through what it is in itself, et cetera? Again, we'd love to chase that rabbit, but we don't have time to do it. So that's where I see a beneficial conversation happening, is about two-tier typology, the nature of the benefits of the Old Covenant in relation to the benefits of the New Covenant. Are they the same benefits, or are they distinct benefits? Uh, And whether this is helpful for moving forward, I,
0: I believe it will be. And hopefully we can arrange some kind of, of discussion on that uh, between us. I think that'd be the most helpful thing moving forward. Um, Rich, do you have any, any, any other thoughts,
1: comments? Uh, oh, I'm just listening and learning. Thank you, Sam.
0: Yeah, thank you both for your time. This is a long one here. I think we're just shy of two hours, but um, hopefully people find this helpful. And uh, hopefully we can. Um, this will help to further discussion and further our understanding of Scripture. Um, and I would look forward to discussing it more with people. Let's uh, pray real quick and close us out. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can share together here. We thank you for uh, for giving us your Word, for revealing the gospel. We thank you for the work of your Spirit in our minds to help us understand these things. We ask that you would humble us, um, uh, help us to discuss these things with our brothers, be sharpened, to offer sharpening to them, that we could be of one mind as much as possible, um, and that we would glorify you in these things. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Amen. Amen.